Well, good morning, friends. Today we're continuing our sermon series, The Journey of Redemption. We've been looking at the women who are in the genealogy of Jesus, as outlined in Matthew 2. Um, and the Advent theme today is the candle of love. And so far, I did not intend this when I outlined this series, but each woman has basically been nearly the opposite of the theme of the candle for each Advent. I mean, you think about Tamar, whose desperate situation seemed totally without hope. You think about Rahab, whose city Jericho was about to be destroyed, seemed totally without peace. Last week, the tragedies of Naomi and Ruth were totally without joy. And today, we, be, we talk about the story of Bathsheba. And her story is one of the most unloving stories in the whole Bible, one of the worst things. Uh, it's a sensitive story of abuse. And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to be going into all of the sordid details of this story, but if you need to, please take care of yourself as we dive into this story. If you would like to follow along, uh, you can open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, this is where the infamous story begins. Now, a little bit of context, Israel is at war. Uh, King David should have been leading and fighting the battles with the army, but he stays back in Jerusalem. And from his roof, he sees Bathsheba bathing and notice, notices that she is very beautiful. And then it says in verse 3, David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, most of us Christians, we don't know Uriah or Eliam very well, uh, but Uriah was actually one of, da uh, one of the 30, or David's mighty men, as they're sometimes called. Remember when, some of you remember when David had to flee from King Saul, and he had to go into all these hideouts and fight various battles. He had 30 elite soldiers who served really as his personal secret service, his bodyguards. These were men who risked their lives to protect David's. Uriah was one of those men. Now, it's not certain, but I think it's very likely that Bathsheba's father, Eliam, is the same Eliam who is also listed as one of David's mighty men. So both Bathsheba's husband and her father are David's personal bodyguards, his secret service. He knows them very well. And that also means that Eliam's father, Bathsheba's grandfather, was a man named Ahithophel, who is the official advisor to the king. So as one scholar writes, the adultery David is about to undertake involves not only Bathsheba herself, but also the wife and daughter of men who had devoted their lives to David's service. So David hears who this woman is. He knows who she is related to, and he doesn't care. Verse 4, David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. What David did was in a totally abuse of power, a total violation of Bathsheba. There is nothing about this story that implies love. Now, unfortunately, the narrator doesn't tell us anything about what Bathsheba might have been thinking or feeling or saying during this uh, story. She is presented as a passive character, they're, that, and they're interested in David. And I would say that she's essentially powerless in this situation. And there is no romance after the fact. David sent messengers to go get her. She came, he slept with her, then she went home. Had it not been for the pregnancy, that might have been the end of their story as we know it. We need to stare at what David did for a moment and consider 
how awful, how evil it was. My Old Testament professor at Northern Seminary, Dr. Claude Mariottini, he outlines several reasons why David's act is completely his fault and evil. First, consider that David already had many wives. In fact, he had seven when he conquered Jerusalem, and after he conquered Jerusalem, it says he took even more wives and more concubines. So there's nothing about this as love. This is an act of greed and lust. Secondly, David commits adultery. He knows Bathsheba was married to Uriah, his personal bodyguard. He would have known that in the Old Covenant law that adultery was punishable by death for both parties. But as, the, as is the case with people in positions of high power, David is likely above the law in this situation. We also need to consider the fact that the king had the power to take people and objects for whatever he wanted. And especially in a patriarchal society, Bathsheba has no option to say no. And consider also that after this affair, David's advisor, Ahithophel, he rebels against David. Remember when David's son Absalom revolts against him, Ahithophel takes Absalom's side. And we're not given a reason why, but it's likely that Ahithophel blames David for what happened to his granddaughter. And that's why this guy needs to go down. In fact, also consider God even blames David. It says in 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. But in fact, in the Hebrew, it says what David done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David did evil, not Bathsheba. Finally, one more fact to consider is that Bathsheba was a woman who is portrayed who is concerned with her own purity and obedience to the law. Verse 4, it says she was purifying herself. Now, what's going on here is that likely after this affair, she goes through a ritual washing which was required by the Old Testament law. But whatever the case may be, Bathsheba is portrayed as one who is concerned with her own purity and following God's laws, but David completely violates that and destroys her honor. So then Bathsheba, she sends word to David that she's pregnant. He's not going to get away with this. Then David tried to get Uriah to come home to be, to be with Bathsheba, to cover, to cover it all up. But Uriah is an elite soldier who is also dedicated to doing God's will. And as a soldier fighting the Lord's battles, it was required that they also maintained ritual purity, which would have required his abstinence. So, so Uriah says, I'm not going to jeopardize the mission of God. I'm not going to jeopardize the war to, to do this. I'm going to maintain my purity. So Uriah and Bathsheba are portrayed as ones showing their dedication to God's will and law, but David is shown as one who is doing everything he can to break it and cover it all up. But it doesn't work. So he sends Uriah back with a letter to, to the commanding officer, Joab, which instructed him to leave Uriah out in front and to pull back so that Uriah would be killed. And in that process, other soldiers... Other men who are unnamed, but presumably honorable soldiers, honorable men, they died in that battle as well. Also, David could cover up his sin. Bathsheba then mourns for her husband Uriah. He was her husband. David had taken him away. I'm sorry, so far this is not a very light Christmas sermon. But in the time of Advent, we need to stare sometimes the darkness in the face so that we can understand God's redeeming light. And in light of the Advent theme of love today, I want to make three points about 
the love of God, the love of Christ. And the, the first is this, is that Jesus' love means that nothing that happens to us can ultimately defeat us. The worst can happen to us. The worst can happen to us, but it can't ultimately defeat us in Christ. Healing and restoration are possible. Bathsheba's honor, her reputation, her life as she knew it, and her husband were taken away from her through no fault of her own. I can only imagine how hopeless and helpless she must have felt. How much false shame and guilt she likely carried, even though it wasn't her choice. At that moment, it might have felt like her whole life was over. But God, but God, is in the business of restoration. His word says he is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus said it is the poor in spirit who will inherit the kingdom of God. They are blessed because they have God's favor. Let me remind you this morning that God is not the author of evil. He is not the author of evil. Evil comes from God's enemy, Satan. It comes from the brokenness and cursedness of this fallen world. And it comes from the evil choices of people around us. Obviously, I think it's obvious that God did not plan for David to do what he did. It was against his will. God said himself, it was evil in my sight. God is not the author of evil. God takes note of the evil things that happen to us. He knows that we, are, that we experience this evil. But through God's mysterious spirit and his workings, he is somehow able to turn evil on its head and to bring surprising unthinkable healing and good from the most egregious acts of evil. Friends, evil is real and it causes real suffering. I am not trying to minimize the evil that we have experienced. I've experienced my own in my life, but I'm here to tell you evil cannot defeat God. Thank you. It cannot defeat God. God is bigger than the evil that happens to us in this world. It's not more powerful than his healing. It's not more powerful than his love. And I'm so glad that Bathsheba's story did not end in 2 Samuel. That's why I read for us, had read for us this morning a lesser known story about Bathsheba because I don't think she should be remembered only for this story. She becomes a queen. She has four children after the fact. Her son Solomon becomes the king and becomes the, like the wisest man who has ever lived, penning most of the Proverbs we have in our Bibles. Aren't you glad her story didn't end, didn't end here? In this initial episode with David, she was powerless. She has no voice. But in the end, she has found her voice. She has found her personhood. She is someone that matters. She has found an identity that is deeper than what she experienced. And she tells David, the one who violated her, violated her you promised me that my son would sit on the throne. And the prophet Nathan join, joins her, but because he knows the injustice that was done to her, and he is going to make it right, her son will be king. And once Solomon becomes king, Bathsheba becomes the queen mother. Which, if you didn't know, it's kind of a lesser-known fact of Old Testament history. The queen mother was actually basically an official position within the royal court. And uh, when Bathsheba comes into the court for a request from her now son is the king, look at what her son does for her. I have this up on the screen for you. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him about Adonijah. The king stands up to greet her, bowed to her, sat down on his throne, and had a throne placed for the king's mother. So she sat down at his right hand. 
sitting at his right hand. The position of power and authority. We know that Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father. This is no measly position. This is a powerful position. Bathsheba, she went from powerless to powerful. She went from the king's object to a queen with subjects. While what happened to her could not be undone, the past can't be changed, she allowed God's mysterious ways to weave healing and redemption into her life. God did not cause her suffering, but he did redeem it. It reminds me, reminds me what the Apostle Paul says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Someone say amen. No one can take away your identity. No one can take away your dignity. No one can take, away, take that away from you. No one can take away the fact that you are a son and daughter of the king of this universe. No one can take away Jesus Christ and his love from you. Amen? His love means that nothing that happens to us can ultimately defeat us. We will be redeemed. The second point I want to make this morning is that Jesus' loves. Jesus' love means the repentant can be forgiven. Now we talked about Bathsheba. Let's go back to David. What he did was evil in God's sight. God said it. God said it. What he did was wrong on so many levels. We, we could spend a lot of time on that. It was an abuse of power. He broke so many of the Ten Commandments. He stole someone's wife. He committed adultery. committed murder. He deceived Uriah and the people about his character. He covered his neighbor's, coveted his neighbor's wife. And by all of this, he did not honor God as his God. All this from a person who was once called a man after God's own heart. The one chosen by God to lead the people. The one who would not even lay a hand on King Saul because he was God's anointed. I mean, this is a warning for, for all of us. That at, one, at one moment we can be singing songs in church, but the next moment committing some of the most egregious acts of evil. It's a warning. And I don't know about you, but if I was Bathsheba's grandfather and the advisor to King David, I'd be tempted to do what Ahithophel did. This man's going down. You're going down for what you did. David is not someone who deserves to be forgiven. So it's astonishing to me that the Lord gives him a chance to repent. And I think this is the one, of most, one of the most shocking things about the character of our God. No matter what people have done, God gives them the chance to repent and be forgiven. And in fact, the Lord sends Nathan to David. That's what it says. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And that in itself is an immense act of grace. God sends a prophet. God sends a preacher to turn the king around. Now, for this part with Nathan and David, you need to remember that kings were also the highest official, the highest judge in the land. So often the king would be presented cases of, hey, this is going on in the kingdom. What is your judgment concerning this difficult case? And so Nathan, and many of you probably know the story, he presents this, this fake story as if it's a case that here, this rich man has taken advantage of a poor man by taking his beloved sheep. 
And it says that David was infuriated with this man. And he says to Nathan in chapter 12, verse 6, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And Nathan replied, You are the man. It's a great sermon application. By, David, by David's own words, he knows he deserves to die for what he's done. He now knows he deserves to die. But through the preaching of a skilled prophet, David recognizes the gravity of what he's done. And one of the most famous psalms in our Psalter, Psalm 51, was, was written in response to this sin. And David writes to God, you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. He's saying, I am guilty I know I've done it. I deserve all the wrong, all the punishment coming my way. And David wrote, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He realized he was a dirty sinner in need of washing. And he, and he said to God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David's eyes were open to the fact that there was something inside, inside of him that was deeply wrong that was deeply broken and needed to be turned around and healed and only God could help him now. And David was forgiven because he was repentant. This is radical, surprising grace. And it, it reminds me of, of a conversation I had one time when I was getting my hair cut <laughs> at, great, at Great Clips. And uh, God comes up a lot because people ask me, oh, what do you, what do, you do? And I say, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. By the way, if you ever get a chance just to kind of drop in God to conversations and, oh, I'm going to church this weekend, things like that, it can open up surprising things. So I try to, I try to tell people, yeah, I'm a pastor. And so it, it brings up this conversation about faith. And, and she says kind of out of the blue, can anyone be forgiven? I said to her, yeah, I think anyone can be forgiven. She kind of pauses and she's thinking, what about murderers? What about, what about people who do all kinds of horrible things? Can they just be forgiven? I'm trying to think about my response. Lord, what do I say to this person? And I said, well, let me tell you a story that Jesus told about two sons. And one ran, ran away from home. He comes to his senses after living in evil, living in sin, and he comes back to his father, and he finds that his father, to his surprise, is waiting for him. And I left it at that. The scandal of the gospel is that the worst of sinners can be forgiven. But I think that what my hairstylist was getting at is you can't just be forgiven. You can't just say you're sorry and, and that's it. And what I mean is you can't be forgiven casually. You cannot be forgiven cheaply. You cannot be forgiven carelessly or nonchalantly. You cannot take advantage of God's grace. Repentance is required. David had to fully own up to what he did. The prodigal son had to come to his senses and walk back home. Just because you said you're sorry doesn't mean you've owned up to it and that you're forgiven. It doesn't mean you've repented. And if you haven't owned up to what you've done, I don't think it's possible to be reconciled. And I think David had to own up to what he did publicly for the entire community. Because how did we get Psalm 51? 
How is Psalm 51 in our Bibles? That means it was given to the people of God for their public worship. And in the, in the very preface of the psalm, it says, this is what David wrote when he went to Bathsheba. For all the people of God to say, this is what I've done and this is my response. I am sorry. I need to be forgiven. I think Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle said that he was given as an example that God would have mercy on the worst of sinners. And I think David is also in our Bibles, maybe to give us an example that the worst of sinners, the worst falls, maybe even within the church, can be forgiven as well. But it's not cheap. You have to repent, and you have to own up to it. And forgiveness does not mean there are not consequences. And that's the last thing I want to talk about this morning is, in my point number three, in his justice and love, God punishes sin. That may sound as a surprise, but let's unpack this. Yes, David is forgiven. It says David is forgiven, but then right away the prophet Nathan says, you're going to be punished for all this, basically. There are going to be numerous consequences for what you've done. And remember that David is not allowed to build the temple of God. God says you're not going to be allowed to do that. And then in the genealogy of Jesus, when, it's, when it mentions Bathsheba, uh, it doesn't even mention Bathsheba by name. It mentions Uriah the Hittite, Uriah's wife. We'll always remember what David did. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we get to be restored to our positions and to our relationships if trust was broken. Now, it's possible, but we can't expect it or demand it. God is radically gracious to forgive because he still loves the person who has sinned. But God is also not unjust. He is not unfair. We are not rescued from the consequences of our actions. When God showed his glory to Moses, God gives his own self-description of his character, which I think gives it potent weight. Look what this says in Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Oh, thank God he forgives these things. But he says he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. This is good news. This is good news. Because God forgives. God forgives. But he's also not unjust. And he makes sure that that the injustices done to us are met with appropriate justice some way Somehow, someday. God is 100% just and 100% loving at the same time. Sometimes it seems like those things are in competition, like the humanity and divinity of Jesus, but they're not. They're both equally true. God is just and God is loving. But that should give us a little bit of pause because if we have any little bit of self-awareness, we will recognize that we too are great sinners. At Christmas time, we celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. But how often do we truly appreciate this gift of grace? Have we really loved God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength? Have we loved our neighbors as ourselves? Give me an audit of your sins and your thought life and your desires and your spending. Oh, 
what self-awareness that brings. And we realize, oh Lord, me too. I am a great sinner. Yes, sometimes we, we justly get upset and angry at the sins of others, but we also have to recognize that we are also great sinners. The Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible, in reality, will only make sense when we recognize that sin is a great offense to the maker of this universe. It's against the, the highest king, the highest power, the highest reality in this universe when we sin against him. So we justly fall under his condemnation when we sin. When we stand before him, rightly, he should pass judgment upon us. If we have sinned, his punishment is not unjust for what we've done. But, oh, friend, let me tell you the good news once again. Right as the judge was about to say that you are guilty, he decided to come down to live a human life, to live a sinless life, and to take upon your punishment and your death so that you could be justly forgiven of everything that you have done and be reconciled with God forever and escape the death that we deserve to die. Yes, we still will have consequences for our choices, but God is willing to take the greatest punishment of all upon himself so that we can be forgiven. And that is love. God himself dying for undeserving fallen humanity with all of its sin and evil and imperfection, he does it anyway. As I close this morning, I want to invite uh, Christina and Barb up for some special music. And as they come up, I want to remind you that God has shown you amazing love. No matter what you've done, no matter what's happened to you, if you are alive right now, God loves you. God wants to redeem you. God wants to heal you. God wants to restore you. God wants to reconcile you to himself. In fact, he is drawing you to himself right now. And whether you're like Bathsheba and you're in need of healing and restoration, or maybe you're like David and you're in need of great forgiveness for your own stupid sin, God draws you anyway to come to him. Your part is to simply recognize how much you need him and just come and just come. The Father's arms are open wide and if you come in sincerity and in truth and in repentance, he will forgive, he will heal, he will restore all things and it's all possible because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, these four women we've talked about they experienced a journey of redemption. Tamar from hopelessness to hope. Rahab from war to peace. Ruth from tragedy to joy. And Bathsheba from brokenness to love. All possible because of Jesus. Friends, receive his love today.